this is a question that no one can really answer, is what is overpronation and how do we actually truly measure it? So, um, and when's it happening? How's it happening? And the, the challenging thing is, is what's happening from a pronation perspective when you walk, when you are walking fast, to when you're jogging, to when you're running at a moderate pace, to when you sprint. There are so many things that change. So I suppose that the angle I would be taking is, is just be careful not getting too obsessed about what is happening from a pronation perspective because um, there are a lot of people who can load and tolerate loading very effectively with varying amounts of pronation. And our foot has to pronate. I mean, there's that challenging aspect where someone comes in and, and, and they may have been given a, 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 an orthotic device um, which has been suggested because they've got shin pain and the orthotic the, the device can, has a significant um, impact on the foot's ability to then absorb force through pronation. You kind of go, well, yes, it's, it's altering load, but have you now maybe taken away the foot's ability to contribute to that um, shock attenuation component? So. I, 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 yeah, I, I don't. I'm, I'm cautious with. Um, I, I pretty much I don't overplay it. That's yeah. that's the thing. And if anything, I try and spend more time diffusing people's concerns yeah. than even suggesting it. Welcome to the Run Culture Podcast. My name is Dane Verway. I'm an experienced runner and running physiotherapist. I created this podcast not only so I had an excuse to talk running each and every week, something that I love to do, but more importantly, this podcast gives me the opportunity to interview fellow runners, friends, and health professionals in a relaxed and easygoing format. This podcast is designed for the everyday runner, so we can all live, learn, grow, and enjoy everything there is to running together. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Run Culture Podcast. Today, I have the pleasure to chat to um, a fantastic running physio, Kevin Liberfell. He's an experienced runner. He's run 16 marathons. He's also gone over to South Africa and run two Comrades marathons. He has a background in squash and um, you know, now has you know, transferred across to running. He's been a physio for 19 years, graduated from Melbourne Uni in 2001. He's the director of physio at Central Park. Uh, he's completed a really big research masters in exercise science at ACU on the Achilles tendinopathy and how it affects lower limb function in 2015. Uh, I went to one of his courses on biomechanics in running in 2015 that he held with the Sports Physio Association. So I've got someone who's really educated in running and physio and I'm so wrapped to have him on the podcast. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, no worries. Um, today, uh, I wanted to largely chat about biomechanics uh, in running, but I understand that that's not the main thing that runners should be concerned about when it comes to injury prevention. Uh, when I went to your talk, I remember one of the first um, slides, you, you said that running injuries haven't changed since the 70s. Um, why do you think this is the case? 
It's one of those tricky ones. I mean, if you look at how much we know and understand um, more today, you'd like to think our injury rates are different. But I think also the big thing is if you look at the running profile. So uh, there's, I remember someone showing me some years ago a, an image of even New York Marathon years and years ago where there was a, a small number of participants and now there's thousands and thousands. And I've actually sort of dug in the archives as well and found an old photo of the Sea of the Surf. And I think there was something of in, in order of two or 3,000 people running the event back in the original day. And now you're getting 75 to 85,000 people running. So your profile of runners is so, so different. So I, I think there's an aspect where you can't truly compare the runners of the 70s to the runners today. Um, and also our lifestyles are probably somewhat different today to back then. So is that enough of an explanation or do runners inherently keep making the same mistakes? Um, <laughs> human nature, we, we don't learn from our mistakes all that well. We've proven that time and time again. So uh, I think there's elements where, I mean, and even if we talk about injury rates and, and, and like, and I go back to the, the runner who comes in, who's always, in, they label themselves as injury prone. They're always getting injured. And then you actually look at their training behaviours, their recovery behaviours, their loading behaviours, their choices when they train, how they train, and you kind of go, well, are you injury prone or do you just make lots of bad decisions? Yeah, 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 yeah. Now that's that's so well put. Um, yeah, we've, we've on that. Is what what are some of the common mistakes um, that you've experienced as a physio when you when you deal with? Uh, runners, what are the, some of the common mistakes that you feel like they're making that result in injury? Okay, so probably the, the, the most common is, and people go, oh, too much too soon, but what is too much too soon? So there's an element you've got to earn the right to be able to progress and build. So um, while some people can, you'll get two different scenarios where one might go, oh, geez, I'm really fit, I'm running a heap, I'm running 15Ks a week, and then someone will come in and go, geez, Kev, I'm only getting back into things. I'm only running 100K a week. I'm, I'd like to be doing a lot more than that. And there's an element of how you get there, how you progress, and giving your body time to adapt. So it's being sensible in building your, your volume of running. And then we go, so that's just one simple layer of volume. The other um, error that a lot of people make, and this is probably your, your club runner, your, your recreational runner who just runs most of the time too fast. So there's a lot of monotony in their running. Everything's just same, same, and often quite fast. So when they try and do a faster session, their easier session isn't actually that much slower than their faster session. So there's not adequate recovery. And there's, I mean, there's interesting research going back to even when they looked at um, um, some of the horses and how they recover from training loads. And it's something that um, um, I know someone who you've spoken previously to in uh, in, in uh, Michael Nishkin, you know, is big on that aspect. And I, I think that absolutely nails one mistake a lot of people make is that easy running just isn't easy enough. Yep. So that's one one big factor that I think people make as an error. And then it's how you structure your training. So um, there's a lot of people who can tolerate three harder sessions a week. Some can tolerate two. Some can only tolerate one. But then also how you space and um, when you do your, your harder training sessions. So I'll put my hand up and say, I used to really battle um, doing a Tuesday, Thursday workout. Um, whereas if I do a Tuesday, Friday or a Tuesday, Saturday, 
or when I'm doing marathon specific stuff, a Wednesday and then doing long, uh, some harder running in my long run, that's enough and then everything else is easy because it's that ability for your body to recover from the bout of loading you've hit it with. So yeah. those are probably the, the mistakes. People look at the, the quick ones, they go, oh, it's just my shoes. And you know yeah. what? You can. If you go and change your shoes completely, so you've inherently been using a particular style of shoe and you change the shoe quite dramatically, well, there's a change in interface or a change in load. Or if you've always run on trails and then suddenly you're running on road or vice versa, you're always running on road and then change the trails, it's your body's ability to adapt to those different stimulus that becomes um, often at the focal point of where someone breaks down. Um, and, and, and then if we had to look at even another layer of, of stress, and, and, and this is something that we look at training stress. Now, stress can come in the form of how much running you're doing, how hard you're running in, um, work, life stress, family stress, yep. sleep. What sort of recovery are you actually adequately recovering to go hard? So if your body's not getting those opportunities to recover and you're training either in... So if you almost look at that perfect storm scenario, you've got someone yep. who is um, training in the heat, they haven't been sleeping well, yep. um, they're doing a hard session, they've changed their shoes, yeah. they do it on a different surface. Yeah. You, you, you're almost creating this absolute recipe to just tip yourself over the edge. Um, so that's kind of those where, where errors can, can come into play from a, an injury perspective. So that's what, what I often see. I don't know about yourself. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I've, um, and that, that's definitely been um, a recurring theme over the last few interviews is um, that I've done with, yeah, like Michael Nischke, um, uh, like that definitely um, we're trying to probably promote um, runners to sort of more think about uh, their training decisions, um, yeah, rather than, yeah, focusing on, um, yeah, like, uh, I, I suppose, um, yeah, I suppose, I suppose focusing on, like, I definitely have people coming in where they're focusing on um, uh, how far, like, they talk about their technique or their pronation um, uh, a lot, and, and, and that, that might be part of it, but I think, um, like, what I've always been interested in, what are your thoughts on, um, can, can you just get strong running, um, any old way and, um, you'll become injury resistant with a slow, gradual, smart training program. And it doesn't matter if your feet roll in, your knees roll in, uh, or, or, uh, uh, do you have to, um, uh, sort of, uh, work on your biomechanics a little bit? Um, and neaten that up and strengthen that up. Um, yeah, what, what are your thoughts? I would have to say it depends because yeah. simply running more, you, you actually become, as you run more and more consistently, your mechanics can change. So yeah. there, are, there are, it's not like it's, this is your mechanics and that you, it won't change as you run more because if you think of it, if you run more, you, you might find there's various changes that occur, whether um, you, you do become more economical, you, you may become lighter you, you, as you run um, faster. Things will start to change from that. Inherently, from a biomechanical perspective, everyone runs differently. And there is no, if anyone says there is one way to run, and there are some models out there that suggest everyone should fit the same model, you, you're setting yourself up for failure because um, there is no one way to run. And mechanics, I would say, 
it, it depends on the person. So it, it comes down to if someone ain't broke and they are tolerating progressive increases in loading and they're training well and, and ticking along, why would you put a whole lot of energy into changing how they move if they are ticking the boxes from their training loads, they don't have an injury history, um, they're able to train consistently, why would you kind of change and, 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 and muck about with those things? Um, so... Um, that's where I would um, I, I, I wouldn't um, go and change biomechanics. Definitely, progressive loading is the probably the, the guts of things. But then you can look at um, strength and conditioning. So um, that also is going to provide a, um, a more robust system to to be able to run. Um, but but then I suppose one can look at what the requirements are from a, a gate free training or working on running technique as a perspective. So if you're having recurring issues, let's call it patellofemoral pain as, a, as, a, as an example, and you go, okay, well, I'm doing my, my rehab, I've been progressively working in my running, and I'm still having these um, nagging issues, then I think there's that, there's that element where you really want to look down and go, well, what is it that this person is doing that is potentially putting greater load through their knee um, and is it then um, an appropriate thing to implement a, a change in running technique? So patellofemoral pain can be from overstriding. That's one example. I mean, we might note that when someone's running, they might have quite a high amount of vertical oscillation. So there's increased um, um, knee flexion through through loading phase. So there can be another factor. Um, so we might be looking at, at from a pelvic stability front, there, there, there can be certain issues. But I think there's elements there that we've got to be careful with regards to going and changing people's techniques for just the sake of technique. But technique changes have the potential from a performance perspective as well. So yeah. it's not just about just about injury. And, I mean, you can look at someone who's running, and I think we, we, we get so caught up with just what's happening with what's going on below the pelvis and hitting the ground that we forget to even look up. And a lot of people don't even look at the simplicity of, um, of arm swing. And a classic example, you'll see people who've got, who really have um, poor trunk control and they've been given a truckload of single leg loading work, um, um, glute tail strength work, um, single leg squatting. And you look at their arm swing and it, it's either... It, um, very asymmetrical. I'll put my hand up and say that's something that I've um, I've been doing a bit of work on, and it's yep. it's often good to have someone watch you do what you do when you run, so you can get some insight into it. But yep. um, if, if you really don't start with um, potentially addressing trunk control, well, then how are you going to address everything below? And some things are easier to change than others as well. So that that's that's another thing to be um, to be mindful of. Yep. Yeah, I like that point how um, you said everyone's an individual and, you know, everyone's designed differently, so they probably should move across the ground differently um, and there should be that difference in biomechanics across the board. Um, are there any like, attributes that you think that you look for that most good runners or runners that move really well across the ground, is there something that you sort of look for that you, um, that's quite common across the board? Yeah, so, so different things that I do look at is, is relative symmetry as well. So there's, you'll often find that um, whilst there are subtle differences side to side, I mean, we're all asymmetrical, but I mean, people go, oh, shouldn't I be exactly the same? Well, which pen do you always write with? 
which like there's, there's so many things in day-to-day life that are are, are asymmetrical. Um, so we're never going to be perfectly symmetrical. It's just how far. So I do look for symmetry um, and relative symmetry. The other thing that I look for is um, vertical oscillation. So even simple um, um, tool. When I, when, when I um, do a running assessment, I, um, I just use one of those Garmin um, chest straps, which it can give you some real-time feedback with regards to vertical oscillation. So, you, I mean, you can, muck, you can muck around using a lot of the video software to look at things, but it's pretty hard to be consistent depending on how far away from the treadmill you are and also any issues with regards to angles of the camera depending on the height of it. So I just um, um, use one of the, the Garmin um, straps and have a, a look at the measure as to what it feeds back from a, a vertical oscillation perspective. Um, the, the other things that I'd be looking at from a, um, a good running perspective is someone who's not overstriding. So overstride is really when you start to look at the, the braking forces that are going to be coming into play. Um, and typically, so if you're looking at a very um, a broad front, um, the suggestion that you can try and land with your foot underneath your hip, you always land with your foot in front. Like there's no, like it, it's just how far. And that's a challenging thing. And, that, and the hard thing in a clinical environment is to go, well, how far is too far? So one looks at, well, do you land with your leg relatively extended or um, is your tibia, um, your shin, relatively vertical when you are hitting the ground? So we've got to just be mindful as to going, well, are you overstriding? How much are you overstriding? Um, and that, those are particular things that I do look for. I'm also looking at um, pelvic stability. How much is someone moving around? I mean, I, I can, it's one of those interesting ones because I've, I've got some video of a, uh, of a probably, I mean, Back then, he was just shy of 30 minutes for 10, so it was around 31 at the time. And one side, pelvic stability-wise, was rock solid. Pelvis barely moved, and the other side, we saw quite significant um, pelvic shift. It, he had some associated injuries on that particular limb, and that provided a platform for what we did from a rehab perspective. So that's where... I suppose I use that um, assessment as a, a nice platform to look at, well, is this um, from a biomechanical front potentially contributing to injury as well? Yep, yep. And uh, so when you're looking at biomechanics and poten- potentially changing biomechanics, is it right to say that you're only really changing it if you're, you've looked at their training loads um, and, and that all seems pretty good, like their training decisions seem pretty good, their strength seems pretty good, but they're still not getting a change in their pain or, or, they, um, or they might be looking really inefficient across the ground? Or, yeah, yeah, yeah I think, and, and that's where it comes down to. I mean, I'll, I'll give an interesting clinical case where um, some years ago I saw someone who um, was wanting to improve their... Um, um, their, their running technique to um, to run a faster marathon. Now she was a pretty slow runner, and I was sitting there going, "Oh, this is easy. We're going to be able to do this." And she gave me her training loads. I'm like, "Well, I reckon if we just get you running more, then you're probably going to get better, just because you're actually not running enough to achieve what you want to achieve." So, and inherently, her running technique was was pretty ordinary. Um, spent some time working on the running technique. But her training load didn't, she didn't run anymore. Okay. So you can you can improve technique, but if your training loads don't meet the demands of what you're doing, 
you're missing a, a big piece. So for me, training load and that progressive load is probably one of the biggest things to to focus on. Then looking at um, obviously an appropriate conditioning program if that is something that is appropriate for that person. Um, and then we start to look at um, mechanics. So I think it's important to, from a mechanical perspective, it's, it's important to see what someone does when they run. Because even if you're not going to change what they do, it's good to get a gauge on how they how they load. Um, but and, and that's where it, it is a, a really um, it is one of those challenging ones where um, how quickly do you introduce a gate free training front. So, I mean, I'll use an example and I'll, and I'll give you a clinical example of a lady that I'm just starting to work with. And it's actually the first thing that we're, we're starting with, purely because she's come to me with a, a 12 plus month history of issues and has been struggling to get going with really any running. So, we've just scaled it to real um, basics and having a look to see what she does from a, uh, a, a movement strategy and the way that she's running is. Um, if one had to look at it from a, 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 an appropriate way to move, um, when you start to look at the basics of running, um, we've got a lot to work with. So it's, it's, <laughs> it's one of those things that I'm happy to dive in, given she's actually not running much and she hasn't been able to run much. So therefore, I would anticipate seeing how she runs that it's worth her while to put that time into running because her actual go-to running technique. She's, she's never really been a runner and got into it in more recent years. So it's worthwhile putting that time into addressing it. Yep. Um, so, like, in reference to that, would you call running a skill? So, like, yeah. it's it's something that, yeah, like, some people seem to just um, have a bit of an innate knack at it. But then sometimes, if you, especially if you haven't done much sport, like, maybe you sort of have to try to teach that person to, yeah. to move that I way? Yeah, I think there's a number of aspects. Now, some people are just natural movers. Like some people have that innate ability, and we just don't like those people. So those <laughs> who run a whole lot faster, and and and, and you're probably one of those who runs a hell of a lot faster than what, what I do. I'm, I'm I'm somewhere at the back. Just I can run for a long time, but maybe not all that quick. Um, but th- there's certainly elements where some people just need. And, and you would have gone through um, all the athletic programs and. And, and you just see some people just have that ability to move more effectively. And is it that way? I mean, I grew up on the squash court um, and, and got into running a lot later. But I, like, I look back at the days when I played, um, played um, squash at a pretty high level. But um, there, was that, there were those guys that you trained with and played with um, that just had an incredible um, means to move. And yes, they needed, we, we all worked and refined on things. And the same thing with running. As you you go through the process, um, you, you can improve how you do move. Now, some people have much greater scope to improve their, their movement patterns. Other people actually have a, a more innate um, means to move, so they aren't going to spend as much time. And there's, there's also another spectrum where I reckon you've got some people who might be natural movers, or maybe generally good at a particular skill, but actually find it hard to refine or change anything. They are really hardwired and it's really hard to implement the change. And then there might be others who actually may not be as naturally talented, but actually have a capacity to improve a skill more effectively with 
hard work. So I think there's a, a, an element where some people just find it easier to change how they move or refine the skill, and other people really, really battle. So, um, and, and we can even see, we go back to the basics of our, our clinic, where you can teach some people how to do a squat, and they will squat easily. Um, and then you might spend three or four sessions just going over the same stuff with someone because a simple task like a squat is just actually for them a really hard movement to, to master. Yep. And I don't think it always is the better athletes that always just move better. Some people just have the capacity to learn a new skill, adapt, and other people find it harder. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then in ter- terms of, say, you had someone who's struggling to uh, get the skill of running, um, say they overstride a little bit and you're trying to teach them that um, nice quicker cadence um, and, and that not nice um, sort of on and off the ground qu- quite quickly, like how do you go about um, uh, trying to teach that? Um, good question because everyone responds to cues so differently. Yep. And it, it, for me, it's minimising that input to try and get the outcome. And how I did it years ago has kind of changed. And then I also look at going well. Um, what and, and cadence for me, I look as as a as a assessment parameter. I'm not going to say, oh, you've got a cadence of 160. We must hit X amount because you get people locked in. Oh. And I'll be checking their garment and going, oh, am I hitting this particular, um, uh, this cadence? And well, it varies according to speed, it varies according to terrain. It depends whether you're running with people. By. So there's all these things that can make it fluctuate and change. So um, for me, I always look at going, well, what else is going on as an example? And even as a, and I, I, I might be going off track a little bit, but I'll use a simple thing where someone um, might have quite an aberrant arm swing. And they might have a lower cadence. So I'm kind of in the back of my mind going, you know what? I know if I can get them running with a bit more of a compact arm swing, get a, a bit more of a, an acute arm swing angle, just get their arms ticking over a little bit um, quicker, if appropriate, what we'll do is we'll just keep an eye on their cadence and see what happens. And quite often you'll see the feet following what the arms are doing. So then all of a sudden you've gone, I've given them one cue, I'm addressing their arm swing, I'm addressing what's going on with their legs, there's a few things starting to already happen um, where you might be using that as a, a tool. Now, if that doesn't achieve the task, um, you, you've then got the option of, of, of getting someone trying to imagine they are getting on and off the ground um, quickly. So you really wanted to chase that light pitch. And then you just monitor cadence. But you don't, I'm very mindful on giving people a fixed cadence because I think that's, that's a trap that people can, um, can kind of fall into. Yep. Yeah, that's great. Um, and then I remember you giving an example of, like, just on that arm swing um, example you gave, how something so seemingly detached with thinking about cadence um, had a good effect on their cadence. Um, I remember you saying something about you adjusted a runner's trunk. You got them thinking, yeah. like, to be a bit more upright, and then you looked at their cadence, and that even changed for that particular and, runner. And, 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 and the example you're using was an interesting one because I remember him. He came in with back pain, yeah. and he was he had this incredible forward trunk lean when we had him running, and we just gave him the cue of running running tall, and it made uh, uh, probably um, uh, certainly 
from a, a clinical perspective, it improved his pain, number one. That was, he came in with back pain. We had a look at how he was running. He had this quite um, noticeable forward trunk lean, so putting quite a bit of stress through his extensions as he's running. So give him a cue of running tall, and that addressed that. But then when we actually looked at everything below, he actually changed to a forward strike from a heel foot strike, and quite a, a noticeable change. So my concern in that scenario is, okay, great, we've helped his back pain, but what's going to happen with his calf complex? <laughs> are, are we putting him at risk of um, stressing his calf, his Achilles, um, potentially metatarsal plants? So we've got to be very careful when we're making changes, just to be mindful of where other things happen. So, and, and we use um, and cadence as an example because, yes, cadence reduces the, um, those loading rates per stride, but you're then actually taking more strides. So it's, it's, it's a fine balance between the reduction per stride and then the total volume across a, a, across a run and how that changes the stress on different structures. So whilst it may reduce the stress at the telephemoral joint in the knee, does it then increase stress overall through the calf? So yeah. it's, it's a real fine balancing act. And this is where we go back to using gait retraining for the right person. So if someone has had um, recurrent calf and Achilles issues and then they go, oh, geez, I want to run on my running technique and someone's got, okay, well, I've, I've been reading that running technique and we now need to get you doing some barefoot running and we've got to get your cadence up and we need to get you on your forefoot a bit more so and get you up. All of a sudden, they just crank that load up through that calf complex and they, you're playing with a bit of fire. So that's, that's yeah. They're that's probably doing a bit of skipping. Careful. They're probably doing some plyo and skipping as well. Oh, <laughs> exactly. And then and, but, and you, you use an interesting term there, plyo, because running is plyometric. It's a plyometric activity. And there's such big levels of plyos, and people come, oh, yeah, I'm doing some plyos. Now, what are you doing? Oh, I'm doing bounding and box jumps, and I'm doing all these high-end plyos, and they're doing it to, to obviously work on that stretch shortening cycle or work on that explosive element, but there's a challenge as to how much extra plyo loading you can do, and at that high level, um, and then you're trying to run it depends on the runner. Someone might be doing 40 or 50k a week. Someone might be doing 80 to 120 or 140k a week. Now, if you're doing big volume running, or you might be the runner who's 8k's a week to 40 or 45k's a week, and he's doing all this plyo work, what you've actually done is you've added a, a, a truckload of extra plyo exercise going from 40 to 50 or 55k's a week, and you're doing all this other plyometric loading, it's, it's again, it's just trying to get those balances of, of stresses coming into play where you've suddenly picked up your running load. You might have to drop the other load for a while, get your body adapting, earn the right to sort of tolerate that elastic load and then bring the other stuff in. But just being careful as to how much of the, the other heavier plyometric load you might be, be doing. Yep. Yeah, fantastic. So if someone like, um, if that was recommended for someone to, oh, you're, you're going to benefit from adding um, a little bit of barefoot strides in or running in, or you're going to benefit from doing a little bit of skipping um, because that'll um, make you move across the ground a bit better and it just looks yeah. like it's appropriate. Like, how do you add it in? It really, really good. You've got to look at it as a strength workout. Like, it's, it's how do you add in a new stimulus or a new stretch? 
So you've got to look at, well, what is their current training volume? How are they tolerating the training volume? So if they have a training volume that has been really consistent, really steady, and they're tolerating that well, well, then it becomes a, a, a mini workout that I would typically add on at the back end of a running session. So it may be that you, you might do it either at the end of, so if you're doing some skipping or some barefoot running, you might add it in at the end of a, a running session. Or if you've, say, for example, done a running session in the morning, you may do it in the afternoon, but then be mindful if you've done a new stimulus, the next run afterwards needs to be an easy run. Yeah. You don't want to introduce a new stimulus and then do a hard session. It's, it's like a, it's, a, it's a new workout, it's a new stimulus, and how your body adapts, one's going to be very mindful of it. So I, like even if we go into strength training, when do you add it in? It's the timing. And I, my personal opinion is, and I'll, I'll simplify it, is I like people, if you can get two strength sessions in a week, great. But I would always encourage people to do it on the day or in a, a period of time after their harder run. So if you do your hard run on a, a, a Tuesday night, then you might do it Wednesday morning. Or if you do a hard run on a Tuesday morning, you might do it on the Tuesday afternoon or evening. You're not going to do it on Monday night. You're, you're probably going to not even do it Monday morning <laughs> because have you recovered adequately from a new stimulus before you go out and push your body hard. It's all that, if we go back to the early discussions about can you absorb that stress? Yep. So um, that's where I would look at going is introduce it um, after um, your harder session um, because then you've got good recovery time afterwards. Whereas if you do it as part of your recovery, well, you're actually adding more stress. So it's a bit of a, it's a, it's a, bit of a tricky one. Um, the challenging question is how much do you add? Yeah, and that's and that's just a bit of a calculated. We just kind of, it's the same as any time you add a new thing. There is a bit of a calculated guess as to how much someone will tolerate. Now, do you underload? Do you just nail it? And when do you overload? It's it's a it's it's, it's, it's that simple thing. And I'll, I'll go back to you. Actually, used a really really good analogy with this um, when you were chatting to uh, Mira, and I and I really like the spaghetti um, <laughs> analogy. Where you, it's a recipe, you, and you're using it over time. And, and the challenging thing is the ease with pasta is you're dealing with the same mixture of meat and spices all the time. Where it gets tricky maybe with pasta is getting the same flavour with beef, with chicken, with because you're dealing with different meats and different types to get the same sort of enjoyment of flavour. Runners, every runner you're going to get is going to be different. How they tolerate the load is going to be different. So there, it's, it's a real challenge. And this is where I think that balance between the science and the art comes into play where you've got to be able to go, okay, well, we know that the person's doing X amount of training volume. Do I feel comfortable adding this in? And if they've earned the right, they're tolerating the load, you then start adding it in. And I, I'm sure every physio, every coach has given people, have given runners not enough. We've all given sometimes too much. Yep. And anyone who says they've never given anyone too much, oh, yeah. yeah. There's, there's always that risk of giving someone a bit, but you can only make the judgment on what that individual's doing. Um, and then you introduce a stimulus, and then you've got to monitor how they respond to that stimulus. If they respond in a favourable way and in a way you expect, then you can add a bit more, and a bit more, and a bit more, and a bit more. And then you, 
see how everything else balances. Um, sometimes you add in that little bit extra and they just don't tolerate it. So it's, 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 a, it's a real, that, this is where I think um, when we start dealing with people and different bodies' responses, it's really hard. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's un- unreal, Kevin. Like, um, I think you uh, articulated that really well. Um, when with adding barefoot running or skipping in, what has been some of your go-tos in terms of like a minimal load where you're like, oh, most people can accept, like will probably tolerate this kind of plyometric drill if we just add it in or, or this amount of barefoot running. Is there, have you found it more of a minimal kind of dose? I'm, 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 I'm having a bit of a chuckle because there's, there's an older guy who runs within our running group who actually did a 42K barefoot run <laughs> in, uh, in isolation <laughs> a few weeks ago. And I'm like, he, he's shooting, that. He's, he's been out of shoes. I think he, he said he's, his current um, um, running shoes and his feet have got about 900 or there about k's on them uh <laughs> he, he, he's complete he's not running in shoes at all anymore um yeah I'm like, if you want to have sore feet from doing longer runs that's that's up to you <laughs> um, um so how much i mean like typically if i start i mean I, there, there is always that element as to how much someone might do so i'll often start off with a, a series of um some shorter strides barefoot yeah. and and that may be somewhere between t- 20 to 30 meter strides and i might start them off with 10 to 12 breaths but just yeah. doing some and you need it make sure the grass or the surface you're running on is appropriate um you don't want to be running on a on really um i suppose on grass that is either unsafe if there's stuff on if there's someone who can cut their foot or irritate their foot on that front um, so a nice level um, surface is something that's that's good from that's from a, a grass perspective. Obviously, being mindful of, of, of big divots in the in the ground. Um, so that's typically a starting point. And then and then if, as they tolerate that, I'll, I'll start to add a bit more volume to it. So I, I use it as a conditioning exercise. I don't I'm 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 not someone that's going to say oh well we've got to get you running barefoot. I think it's a great conditioning exercise, and that's how I place it as opposed to, oh, we should be running barefoot. Because if I want to run hard, I want to perform. I want to, and again, my performance is not the same as yours, or I'll, I'll even throw Kev Craig in the mix, who's, uh, who, who are far, far faster than me on the physio front. But from a performance perspective, like if you're running hard, having just that bit of softness or bit of protection under your foot um, is is something that I think is going to be a preferable choice for, for the majority of us. I know that there's certainly um, there are um, certain performers over the years who have done incredibly well, either barefoot, and a lot of the people go back to Bikili's performances and so forth. Um, but if you, if you look at the broad spectrum, can most of us, tolerate barefoot running and, and, and lots of it. We they were like using the natural argument. Well, it's natural. Now, look around us. We live in shoes, the ground's concrete. Um, there is so much of our world that's not really natural. So to be able to be um, chronically adapted to that is, is really hard. Skipping, and this is the thing, skipping is skipping just simply skipping. And this is the thing I lo- So this goes back to some of my research and it's, it's something I had the pleasure of talking, talking to um, and I'll, I'll give you a through to great um, Craig Purdom in, in great depth about because I love calf function with running and calves are 
such a big, big part for running. And there's kind of this, this perception of, oh, we've got to get better glutes. We need to do our glute activation exercises. We've got to do this. But what about loading those calves? And when you look at the skipping aspect, really that ability to hit the ground and, and, and take off and that real kind of nice little um, explosive um, stimulus that we get from skipping um, as a, a platform for, for exercise, you can use, obviously, a skipping rope. But the, the beauty with skipping, and this is where metronomes come in in handy, we know if you skip at a lower rate or a slower speed, so typically if you were to skip, if we, if, just saying, if we had a whole bunch of people skipping and we let them skip at whatever rate they wanted to skip at, most people would skip somewhere between 2 to 2.2 times per second. So 120 to 130 skips per, per minute. That's what most people would do on average. Yep. So you've got to remember, if you're giving doses of skipping and you're giving time, you've got to think, how many skips is the person doing? How many loading cycles are they doing? So for 15 seconds, that's 30 skips. For 30 seconds, that's 60 skips. And it's, it, 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 it doubles through there. But then we can also go, well, it's just skipping at a preferred rate what we want to target in isolation because we can actually get someone then trying to skip at a faster rate. So let's call it 2.5 or 150 um, um, hops per um, per minute. And all of a sudden, they are hopping with a stiffer, a stiffer knee. Yep. So you're really isolating and getting that calf complex to work. So if you want to try and target that real calf aspect, getting someone to actually skip at a faster frequency is actually not a bad idea. But just then saying, oh, well, if you skip for 30 seconds at this rate and 30 seconds for this rate, are we comparing apples with apples? No, we're actually getting someone doing more skips with more calf demand given the same time frame. So if you have someone skipping for, and we'll keep the numbers simple, if you said to someone, just skip for a minute at whatever rate you want, and they happen to do 120 skips, and then you said to someone else, oh, skip for a minute at um, 150, all of a sudden they've done 30 more skips, but not only have they done 30 more skips, there's more calf demand in those extra skips. Yep. So they've done 150 skips at a higher calf demand than someone who's done 120 skips. So it's not just simple math where you're going, oh, I just start doing skipping. You've got to think as to how much and the like. And, and the thing that I was having a, a really good chat with Perz about is it's actually a good consideration to get people doing skipping and even pulsing, which is where you start to work that impact front. But it's got nowhere near as much um, um, stress through both your bones as well as your tendon structures is to do pulsing where your foot is on the ground and you're, you're kind of doing these mini skips at the same rate, but your foot doesn't leave the ground but to actually do it at a few different frequencies. So rather than just doing it at one set frequency, do it at another, it just gives you that little bit of extra robustness to that calf and spring mechanism, which might be good for running at different speeds. Also different surfaces. So the calf works differently on a soft versus a hard surface. So this is the mechanical component. And, and if you start looking at distance runners, the challenging place comes in is if you have one of them, and I'll use an example, you've got a cross-country race, yeah. And it's at a, is a Cluden... Oh, yeah, Cluden uh, Farm. And it's been wet and muddy. And all of a sudden, you're running. When you're actually, your foot's hitting the ground. And the typical scenario is as your foot hits the ground, I'll, I'll just get a little, yeah. a little foot bottle. Yeah. So if you imagine you've got a nice, hard ground lever, 
as your foot hits the ground, you form this nice lever through your foot to then propel. But imagine this scenario where as you're going, and think of either the beach or a really boggy ground, as you push, suddenly the ground gives. You actually, your car complex has to not only rely on that kind of that spring component, but you actually then lose that, um, that leverage type system through there. So you've suddenly got to create more energy or push harder to propel yourself. So the classic scenario is someone running on sand or running on the beach, you're making your car, your car will often be a lot sore after doing something like that. Yep. So yep. that's just something to, to be mindful of. So that's where I think trying to get that calf as robust as possible, and that's where barefoot running will give you some stimulus, but skipping is a cracking training tool, um, and doing that at different, um, at different intensities or different frequencies um, is a really valuable exercise to consider. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, and then, like, on a similar sort of topic, um, uh, you mentioned stiffness a few times there. What is it and, uh, like, how important is it for performance? Okay, yeah. cool. It's an interesting one. So, so part of my research, I looked at stiffness. Now, stiffness is a, a term that can be thrown around in different ways. So people go, oh, I'm feeling a bit stiff and tight. I need to stretch out and so forth. But when we talk about stiffness of the limb during running, and there are some people um, in the running community who kind of don't like the use of the, the term, but I think rather than trying to get over-analytical on on the, the exact specifics, I think the key thing we look at from stiffness is how does the leg deform during running? So when you are running, and you, you imagine yourself as this, um, we've spoken about that vertical oscillation, so if you picture yourself as this kind of, this bounding, springing runner that's going along the ground. Um, as your foot hits the ground, your body starts to absorb load. So you start to flex at the ankle, your knee flexes, your hip flexes, and then as you go through into mid-stance. Now, this is where when you look at running and walking, there are probably two very distinct differences between running and walking. When you walk, you've always, you, there's always at least one foot in contact with the ground at all times. When you run, there's that phase of flight where you're in the air. Now, the other big difference is when you're at mid-stance. So when your foot is underneath your body when you walk, you're actually at your tallest because your knee's straight and you're, you're at your very tallest point. When you run, you're actually at your lowest because you've just absorbed a whole bunch of or, or attenuated a whole bunch of force as you hit the ground and then you're going to spring off and take off. So if you picture yourself as a spring, so if you've got a really compliant spring, that's a spring that is really kind of bouncy, or a really stiff spring, so a spring that just doesn't compress. If you think of it from a performance perspective, if you've got a really compliant spring, a spring that's doing that, you're, just, you're spending a lot of time absorbing or attenuating and then a long time taking off. But also your body's going to be able to absorb that. So you, you, you're putting potentially more stress through your patellofemoral joint. You need your, your soleus has to work harder at the ankle to absorb that as well and then help um, sort of drive that propulsion. And then on the converse, a really, really stiff spring is potentially good from a performance perspective, but then attenuating force is probably not so good. So that's where you, you, you maybe your concerns of 
with type of bone stress or, or back pain if you're not able to absorb that force. So there's a, a fine balance between being too stiff and not stiff enough. And classically, you'll find your average runners, your, your, your club runners, your, most people are not stiff enough. And if you look at your good runners, your good runners tend to have a, a, a greater level of stiffness as they hit the ground and then recoil to take off. Yep. And that stiffness um, for those good runners, um, am I correct in saying like that's giving them um, some free energy like that? that yeah, you're getting more bang for your buck. You're not yep. having to work as hard to um, propel yourself along because as you're hitting the ground, you, you attenuate your foot and then you, you, you take off. So you're not actually having to compress and spend as much time and as much range compressing to then take off. So you, you, you're typically getting a bit more bang for your, your buck as a... As a, if you had a look at it from a, a, um, a an absorption and a recoil com- component. Yep. Yeah. Nice. Um, and training that stiffness is that it's exactly what we were saying before. It's through the skipping. It's through the so so, so, stre- so strength work will yep. improve stiffness. That's one thing. So if you're not strong enough, like that, that's an issue. So sometimes just doing some general strength conditioning work. So getting in the gym and pushing heavy stuff. Just get stronger. <laughs> so keep it simple. People people love complicating things yeah. and you come across these funky exercises and I've seen a heap of... I don't know, maybe I'm just a, a simple person, but um, I've seen some, some funky stuff that doesn't really address strength. So even, like, I mean, I'll even use a simple example where soleus strength work. And the soleus needs to generate a lot of force when you run. So if you were to do a lunge with a weight plate under your foot, which I've seen proposed, as, and, and then do calf raises in that position there, yes, it's a coordination exercise. It's a really high-level balance exercise. Are you strengthening your soleus? I have to argue and say, no, you're not. So you, you want to be able to go, okay, well, we're going to get soleus stronger, so we're going to do some seated calf work. We're going to get our, our, our overall complex of our calf stronger, so we're looking at um, a straight knee calf, which is going to get soleus and gastroc. So we want to do some Smith machine-based um, calf strength work. We, we, we look at potentially doing things like um, loaded squats, Bulgarian um, split squats. So you want to get your body stronger. And there's, there's other exercises as well that, um, that obviously one can look at doing. So that's one aspect. Skipping is another. So you're actually working that, that spring mechanism and you're using plyometric-based exercises to improve that stiffness aspect. Run technique can also improve stiffness. So if you've got someone who's a long loping, long strider, long overstrider, the consequence of that is going to be resulting in having a a more compliant running um, mechanism. So by actually getting a higher leg turnover, it's actually going to work. It's going to get you a um, a stiffer spring mechanism. So that's another thing. So again, you can kind of look at these different layers and different things to consider looking at, um, at stiffness. Yep. And also there's, there's, there's elements where surface can influence stiffness. So if you are, this is where our bodies are pretty cool, where we can kind of maintain this, this sort of um, almost continuum of stiffness where if we run on a soft surface, we will be stiffer. If you run on a hard surface, your compliance will be um, um, greater, so you'll be less stiff. So if you're thinking of that, all of a sudden from a performance perspective, doing lots of running on hard surface might be actually good from a calf and an Achilles perspective, 
but not so good from a PFJ because a PFJ you're going to kind of compress more. So I mean, you could argue that if you do flex a bit more, it's going to put a bit more demand on that ankle complex as well. But you've got a nice rigid lever system where the ground's not going to go, so that that spring mechanism comes into play. Um, but then one's going to be careful on a really soft surface with calf issues because you're going to stiffen up, but you're also going to, as we spoke earlier, is that calf mechanism is not going to be as effective um, on a really soft surface. So that's where we're just going to be um, careful on hard versus soft. Yep. And does that same thing apply with runners as well? So if you're um, running in cushioned runners all the time, uh, does your body adapt and become a bit more compliant um, compared yeah, to... It's, it's, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's an interesting one because yeah. um, you, you, we do got a question about the, the softness but also potentially the weight of the shoe. So if a shoe's really soft, um, you might have that tendency to just throw your leg out and really kind of allow that um, the, the cushioning to absorb the force yeah. and you just kind of have this nice bounding type um, pattern. But then also if you've got a heavy shoe, um, might have a dual density foam, you might have a, a chunky orthotic in there, you've got this extra mass on the end of your foot and then as you stride out, that might encourage that um, tibia to, to go out further as well. So that might also impact that spring mechanism by um, creating a, a, an overstride, which then um, has a consequence of you compressing even more so. Yep, yep. Um, no, this is all great stuff. Um, I have just a few more questions, Kevin, um, just about biomechanics. Um, uh, a lot of patients and runners come in and they're um, often uh, concerned that they're pronating or overpronating um, too much or they're they're worried that they've got a rear rear foot con initial contact like um uh how often are you worried about um those uh biomechanical observations when you see a runner okay Wor worried is an interesting choice of words yeah. because there's no, no i was just more so because i, I would say I, i'm i'm rarely if ever truly worried about that presentation because we've all got the capacity, when I say, there's that potential capacity to adapt. And it, again, it's got to match in if it's something that I'm suspicious is contributing to an injury that they might be having problems with. Um, and, and I'll throw the question, and, and this, is, this is a question that no one can really answer, is what is overpronation and how do we actually truly measure it? So, um, and when's it happening? How's it happening? And the, the challenging thing is, is what's happening from a pronation perspective when you walk, when you are walking fast, to when you're jogging, to when you're running at a moderate pace, to when you sprint. There are so many things that change. So I suppose that the angle I would be taking is, is just be careful not getting too obsessed about what is happening from a pronation perspective because um, there are a lot of people who can load and tolerate loading very effectively with varying amounts of pronation. And our foot has to pronate. I mean, there's that challenging aspect where someone comes in and, and, and they may have been given a, 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 an orthotic device um, which has been suggested because they've got shin pain and the, the, the orthotic device has a significant um, impact on the foot's ability to then absorb force through pronation. You kind of go, well, yes, it's altering load, but have you now maybe taken away the foot's ability to contribute to that um, shock attenuation component. So, uh, I, I, yeah, I, 
I don't. I'm, I'm cautious with. Um, I, I pretty much I don't overplay it. That's yeah. that's the thing. And if anything, I try and spend more time diffusing people's concerns yeah. than even suggesting it. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, I'm very similar. Um, and then. Uh, what about crossover gait? Um, so, uh, if someone comes in with lateral hip pain or, uh, and you thought that, um, and you saw them on the treadmill and they were running with that crossover kind of gait, like how often do you sort of, um, look at that and play with that? I I, I always assess it. Yeah. Um, and then it's that, that element, it's probably, it's not my first, um, means to address from a change. Um, but it's something that I've, I've used it a few times. Um, and I, I, the, the first person that comes to mind is a guy who came in. He was, he was, his, his goal was to run a, uh, a 42K at the back end of an ultra, sorry, of a, um, an Ironman, and he um, couldn't get beyond 8K. And he had, so he'd come in to me. He had had a truckload of gluteal strength. He had been given great programs. Um, so there was, like, I'm sitting there going, okay, tick, I'm not, I'm, that's, like, You've been doing the work there. That's fine. Um, he'd had um, orthotic intervention, changes of footwear. Um, he'd had an ITB release. So he'd had all this stuff. So I'm kind of going, this gives me an opportunity to look at. And he had quite a, a mass crossover game. And we brought that in as, as an intervention quite early. Um, and it was fantastic with one minor exception. And the minor exception was he actually developed um, some other... Um, medial knee pain because he actually overcorrected and started to run a bit like a cowboy, <laughs> which is where it's important to, if you're going to introduce a change, to reassess. Because when he came um, back in and reviewed, he goes, kept the outside money has been feeling good, but I'm getting some irritation, so we reviewed what he was doing, and he just overcorrected. And then it was a matter of, do, of, of getting him doing some stuff to, to bring in, and he had a... He, he had a really, really successful outcome. So um, how often do I use it? I don't use it a lot, but I certainly use that. And there's a couple of means that I use as an intervention um, where I've, if you're going to use a treadmill, um, I've got a, the, the um, treadmill that I've had, I've got a, um, a white line that runs down the middle of it. So doing some visual, um, so some real-time feedback where you can run, you've got a mirror in front and then you can see the, the treadmill and you're running just trying to, get on either side of that line or even just doing some running drills um, with football ovals where you've got white lines and you might try and, um, um, if you stand with your feet side by side, so you're just catching the outside of the line um, on either side just to get that familiarity with not crossing over that midline. Nice. Um, And then one last question. I remember you saying that you were able to, as a runner, um, go from wearing an ASICS Kayano with orthotic support to... A, a neutral shoe and um, yep. do it well and, and feel um, strong doing it. For you particularly, what what worked for you in that process of um, yeah getting to that shoe? Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting because I mean, even if I look at it from um, so why I got if I look back why I got orthotics and why I was running in Keanos, I started off running and I had um, medial tibial stress syndrome. And the, to be honest, the primary reason I had medial tibial stress syndrome is I came off um, running hard around a squash court, lunging, changing direction, cutting, lots of multi-directional running. And I had had no experience of consistent running in a straight line. So if I reflect back on I had shin pain and I was 
chasing orthotics. So this goes back into my very early days as a physio. I chased orthotics, I chased footwear. I went back, I kind of was, I was a patient and <laughs> had it. It was kind of early on before even yeah. anyone was really doing any any of the gait assessments or running assessments. So we're talking probably it would have been around 2004, 2005. Um, this makes me feel really old. <laughs> um, but, um, so that was really the path that I followed. And, um, if I look back, it was really just getting consistency in running over time that made that difference. And then what I would find is when I'd spike up my running load, um, I would get, I'd still have my thoughts, but I'd get to somewhere else. I'd get to post pain or um, I'm trying to think what other issues I had. I had some plantar fascia pain. And in essence, if I had to summarise, it was the, the basics of not building up from a a load perspective adequately over time. So I hadn't earned the right to build where I was, which goes back to the very, very first things that we looked at. Um, I'm still working on, and I've got pretty rubbish calf strength, so I'm still working on that. And the, the fact that I can now get away with doing 120, 100, I used to get shin pain running um, 5K three times a week is, is obviously worlds apart. Um, so the, the transition was firstly going and removing the devices and staying in the in the Keanu, um, to then kind of exploring. And, and, and to be honest, I, for me, when I actually did it, it was a bit of self-experimentation where I just tried some different shoes and I was like, hang on a sec, I don't need that much of a shoe. And I, I, I had the Keanu, I tried the Adrenalines, I tried the GT, um, just trying to think what, what what model they were back then, but they were like a 2100. 2100 or, yep. or thereabouts. So that goes back ages ago. And they always felt great for the first two months. And then I kind of felt kind of back in the same thing. So a, a large element for me was probably addressing calf strength, graduated training, and um, I was a fairly compliant runner. So what I mean by that is I was a loping, long striding, over striding, um, floppy runner. So strength work, um, looking at increasing leg turnover and currently I'm working probably putting more time in um, from a, a trunk control than an arm swing perspective. So it's, it's, a, it's an evolution over time um, how that's evolved. But yeah, so I, I mean that transition on, on the footwear front, that would have probably been sort of early to early to probably mid 2000s. And I reckon I was out of orthotics and out of pianos probably by Ooh, I'm just trying to think. I reckon, I'm just trying to think, I reckon Comrades, the first time I ran it, I still ran it in a Keanu, and yeah. then I think after then I started, which was 09, I think after then I pretty much shifted away from having a um, an orthotic in my shoe. All right, yeah, okay. Which That, that sort of summarises a lot of what we've talked about, how... Um, yeah, there were some biomechanical changes, and but like you felt like it was more that like smart training over time and just the conditioning over time, um, and having that long term approach and that long plan. Um, yeah, and that's yeah. and that's the thing is I think even in running a lot of people are short sighted and they'll go, oh, well I want to do this marathon, and they haven't had the right to train for a marathon, and there's and you, you you then get injured leading up to it, and you have time off afterwards, and then you go, oh, I'm going to chase another marathon. Yeah. So you keep going through this constant cycle of, um, of of people getting injured and they're not being able to train, and then and, and it's it's just this constant cycle. And I'm always looking long term, and I, I don't know, I'm 
I'm happy to put my hand up and say that I'm pretty conservative with people's loading programs and, and running. But I, I think when you look at running and, the, and, and what running provides for a lot of people, you do need to look long term. And even from a technique perspective, there, there's been platforms in the past where it's been improve your technique in four weeks. Change one thing and give yourself six to eight weeks to adapt. And this is even where, for me, some of the research falls down. Um, where you start looking at, oh, this biomechanical strategy didn't work or, or this didn't change. This, we, we, we did this strength program for eight weeks and it didn't change mechanics. Now, how long do you put time in to change a performance outcome? Oh, like, yeah, it takes months, so long. Yeah, like, like, I mean, I've had the fortune in recent times, and I, like, again, this goes back to when I started doing a lot of the running assessments. So I've got um, some footage of... Um, of, of Julian Spence Moose oh, running back yeah. in 2009, 2010, where he was kind of the, it was, this, <laughs> um, it, it was, it was a, a pretty bloody good runner back then, but he's, he's obviously kicked on yeah. in, in big, and, and he's, he's, he's one who's also big on that. It's, it's, it's year to year, it's year on year. And, and it's, it's, it's one of these things that evolve. And I'll, I'll look at going, when did I progress the least? Like I'll probably, from a, 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 a training perspective, probably improved the most in the last, 18 months to two years. Why? Because I've been able to train consistently year in, year out. If I look back to the, the 2010 to 2018 period, going back to uni and doing a master's, two kids, it's, um, business work. Not surprisingly, I had niggles. I had inconsistent training. My performance didn't improve at all. There's only so much stress and things that people can actually absorb and perform. And then when you, 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 you jump back to these, um, tr- um, I kind of went off a bit track of this, but That's if good. you look at some of the, the research um, that's out there, I just don't believe that the strength programs are long enough to be able to go wholeheartedly, strength changes don't change these outcomes from a running perspective, from a biomechanical front. Now, we know strength, strength changes we've seen have got good performance outcomes, so that the research supports nicely, and that's a great thing. Um, I just wonder whether um, the small changes in biomechanics that we may see uh, with strength changes or, or alterations in strength, it might just take longer to actually see those changes occur. So I think throwing out and saying, oh, strength doesn't change how we move um, is something I would be very cautious with. I'm not going to say, oh, just do strength work and that will change how you move because it will have different effects on, on others more than, um, than, than, than some. Um, we do know that if you change mechanics and alter your running technique, that's going to have a far more direct and profound um, effect on how you move. But it's what's appropriate and for the right, and picking for the right person. Yep. Oh, yeah, um, Kevin, like there's so much gold in this interview. I'm so fortunate and happy, like, like happy that you've been on and taught like you know we're happy to you know share your knowledge um thanks so much for thanks, yeah, thanks yeah. for having me no um i'm worried that you probably you've got a patient in five minutes um <laughs> yeah um but yeah so many people will benefit from that and i don't know i think it it does clear up like a lot of myths out there too so that's what we're trying to do on this podcast and um yeah try to educate the running community on a lot of things Pleasure, mate. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on, and uh, always always love talking running. Yeah, yeah. No, thanks, Kevin. Thanks so much. Cheers.